Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to Real Science Radio. Last week, the show went a little bit too long, so we decided to split it into two parts. This is the conclusion of Doug McBurney's show with Daniel Hedrick. So let's jump right into the broadcast. We're going to have to create a list. We'll, we'll start a list of real science things, things that are real, meaning things that simply cannot be allowed to be reversed, Right. Our understanding of real things, it might improve, it might evolve, and, and explanations of real things might become more precise. But real things have to be declared as things that objectively exist and that their existence cannot be questioned, cannot be reversed. There are real things that cannot disappear. They cannot fundamentally change. And here at Real Science Radio, we're willing to be the ones to declare what they are. We will declare them. And then, by the way, we're not afraid if any so-called authorities that put themselves in charge of changing real things, if they want to challenge our real things, we'll be happy to defend our real things against them. We'll do it on the air. We'll, we'll debate them on the air. I don't believe if and, and Daniel, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe that Bob Enyar ever backed down on an offer of a debate from a, a, another rational person. Never. <laughs> totally true. Well, I remember he had a policy at the church that if someone wanted to challenge one of his fundamental teachings, that he would give them the pulpit and they would be allowed to come up and, and give their best arguments as long as there was an opportunity for him to to speak as well. And so we'll honor that tradition in that if anyone wants to declare uh, that any of our real things don't exist or they don't exist as we claim they exist, we'd be happy to debate them live on the air, right in front of God and everybody. Yes. So how so, would you start the list? Let's start with sex. And when I say sex, I don't mean the dirty pictures on the internet trying to grab your attention away from the news stories. I mean, just quite simply, sex, male and female, sex as a state of being in the world, a person's sex, male or female. Right. And not their gender. Not <laughs> gender is a grammatical term and grammar is far more fluid than sex. <laughs> sex is not fluid at all. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And, and by the way, I don't mean biological sex or, or sexual identity or gender expression. Or any of the other nomenclature that are being bantied about with all these extra words and syllables that we don't need. I just mean sex, male and female. That's it. It's simple. And that's probably got to be the first thing we put on the real science things. The list of real science things that are real. The first thing is sex. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and as embarrassing it is to be alive in an age where we have to actually declare <laughs> that sex is a real thing. Right? Uh, I think it has to be done. 
Okay. And now it has to be done. I mean, it just has to be done. And number one on the list of real science things that are real sex, it's male and female. It's absolute. It's ubiquitous. It's reproducible. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's simply not up for debate. And we're going to put any competing theories about it to bed right here. And if anyone would like to raise an objection, as we've already said, send us an email. We'll put you on the air. And we'll make it our case to talk to you about this. But generally speaking, we should not have to expend any more intellectual energy on defining what sex is. And we can move on to other things. Can you believe we actually have to even state this stuff? Uh, You know, but anyway, we can do this with complete confidence. And we do understand the definition of sex. And I think we should invite the brightest audience in creation to contribute to the list of real science things that are real. And for that, you can simply email us at bob at rsr.org, and we will we'll at least look at what you have. We may not entertain it if it's too foolish. But anyway, I appreciate that, Daniel, very much so. And, and so now that we have settled this issue of sex, we can actually move on <laughs> confidently from the former controversy over this definition of sex. And let's talk about respiration respiration breathing right it turns out that respiration involves far more than simply inhaling and exhaling right now i got to thinking about this because i asked the question it's not as fundamental as the question you asked but it was it was more fundamental from my point of view where does the atp synthase get the energy it needs to produce atp as an energy source that cells use to perform their work. And I think we have to back up a little bit, Daniel, because I don't know that we've ever given a simple definition of the ATP synthase here on the show. And this I've, I've noticed that this happens to me as I, I start talking about things and I forget that some people have never heard of these things. That's true. And so can you give us a, a thumbnail of the ATP synthase? Yeah, usually it is considered just the the light, you know, the energy of all cellular life, basically. But adenosine triphosphate, ATP, is an energy-carrying molecule found and constructed, actually, it's constructed together, in the cells of living things. And ATP captures chemical energy obtained from the breakdown of food, like glycose, and it releases it to fuel other cellular processes. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Yes. And so you hear the word enzyme, right? So when I heard the word enzyme back in sixth grade or whenever I first heard it in science class, I just thought an enzyme, it's almost like it just breaks things down. Like if you put something in a, in a bucket of acid or something, the enzyme just breaks it down. But I didn't realize that this ATP synthase, which is commonly referred to as an enzyme, it turns out to be this amazingly sophisticated machine. It's a machine. It's not just a chemical reaction. It's, a, it's a, an electromechanical, magnificent, phenomenal thing. It has gears and it has a shaft and it has like a little basket, almost like little hands. And it's actually putting something together. It's amazing. It's phenomenal, right? It's unbelievable. And, and, and like more than just a chemical reaction. In fact, when you hear the term chemical reaction, you should immediately stop and just for a moment ponder the fact 
that what I'm about to hear about is probably so amazingly sophisticated that it would take me decades just to comprehend what's going on. That's a chemical reaction. Okay, so, and now to try to bring us back to the topic at hand, like I said in the tease last week or last time we got together, you know, while the socialists and the communists and the fascists were intent on destroying the world and killing all the Jews, the central role of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, in energy metabolism was described by some very fine 20th century Jews, right? I agree. You know, we should start with Fritz. Fritz Albert Lippmann. He was yes. born in 1899 in Konigsberg, Germany, earned his MD at Berlin in 1924. He obtained his PhD in chemistry from the University of Berlin in 1927. And in 1932, Lippmann was not allowed as a Jew to work in Germany. So he moved to Copenhagen and worked with Enjar Lundsgaard studying biology. And in 1939, Lippmann immigrated to the U.S., fleeing the Nazi regime to Cornell Medical School in New York. And Lippmann isolated and determined the active molecular structure of coenzyme A, one of the most important catalysts involved in cellular metabolism and the breakdown of food into functional energy. And and he was married to a woman. <laughs> he, he was married to a woman, Alfreda, and they had one son. And uh, he lived until 1986, died in Poughkeepsie around uh, 87 years old. And from him, Daniel will go on to Herman Kalkar. Now, he was born in Copenhagen, 1908, received his MD from the University of Copenhagen, 1933. And as you said, in 1932, Fritz Lippmann, he was not allowed to work as a Jew in Nazi Germany, so he moved to Copenhagen and became associated with Lundsgaard. And Lippmann became one of Kalkar's mentors. And under Lippmann's mentorship, Kalkar's PhD work contributed to the identification of ATP that was eventually published by Lippmann in 1941. In 1940, Kalkar accepted an appointment at Washington University. The invasion of Denmark by the Nazis in the spring of 1940, by the way, made it impossible for Kalkar and his wife, who was a woman, by the way, <laughs> Vibeki. Well, the, the invasion of the Nazis made it impossible for them to return to Copenhagen. And this leads us to the work of another Jew driven into refuge by the socialists of Nazi Germany. And, you know, it's the best guy of all of them. And it's Hans Krebs. I mean, it's the Krebs cycle that we're going to be talking about soon here. And he was right. a physician and a biochemist born in Germany in 1900. He received his medical degree from the University of Freiburg in 1924. And Krebs' life as a respected German scientist came to an abrupt halt in 1933, of course, because of his Jewish ancestry. Yeah. He fled to England where he participated with the rest of the English citizenry and the total destruction of the Nazi regime and continued his work in biochemical research. Now, he studied cellular respiration, and it's a biochemical process in living cells that extracts energy from food and oxygen, and it makes it available to drive the processes of life. And he is best known for discovering the Krebs cycle. No, sorry. <laughs> he didn't name it that, obviously. It's called the citric acid cycle, and everyone <laughs> else gave him credit for the Krebs cycle. And also the urea cycle. Uh, and these are fantastically designed metabolic processes and that provide energy in the cells of humans and other creatures. And for this discovery, Krebs won 
the Nobel Prize in 1953, back when the Nobel Prize actually meant a lot more than it does today. And, <laughs> you mean before Barack Obama got it? Yeah, exactly. So, oh, and, and just one more thing. Uh, Hans Krebs married Margaret, a woman. In 1938, they had two sons and a daughter. And, and I'm going to post a link to some more information on Krebs and the citric acid cycle, electron transport. It's just all so extraordinarily fascinating. The respiratory chain. And I wanted to get to this because human beings, uh, we're selfish, we're fallen, and we like to leave opportunity for a sin available to ourselves. We have this tendency, especially when we make rules and we create systems and institutions, we tend to build into our rules and our systems and our institutions. We tend to build in room for our own sin that we can exercise our own sin. And so what scientists and religious leaders, cultural leaders, political leaders have done for millennia is assert that personhood or humanity or someone becomes a living being when they take their first breath. And the reason they've done that is not based on anything scientific or anything really provably religious. Genesis 2-7 aside, it's really just to leave room for their own sins so that in case they have a situation where they want to eliminate an embarrassing, inconvenient pregnancy, that they could do so. And so they constructed this idea about breathing before Kalkar and Krebs and Lippmann actually told us what respiration means. Because when, when God breathed the breath of life into Adam, it wasn't just that he breathed a breath or anything like that. It's that he initiated the respiratory chain that functions to oxidize molecules to reduce molecular oxygen to water. And all of these functions, they're not just breathing with your lungs, although that's a part of it, but it's, it's an electron transfer process. And it results in the release of energy, which generates the proton motive force that's used to drive the ATP synthase in the forward direction. It synthesizes adenosine triphosphate for use in cellular reactions. So when you think about respiration or breathing it has nothing to do with the child being born and taking a breath it has to do with well the question you asked at the very beginning daniel which is how does the atp synthase come into being if there's no atp synthase to create atp exactly right and you know there's actually some really interesting things about atp that we'll get to or maybe i should just reveal now is when I've been studying through this, and I, I assume you came across the same thing, this motor can spin between seven and 10,000 RPMs. I mean, this wow. thing is humming along. So if you think about it, it requires 10 ions, right? Hydrogen ions, which are protons, right. to be able to make one rotation of the ATP synthase motor, one rotation. And ready for this? In one rotation, it has the ability to create three ATP. So 10 ions come in, three ATP come out. That tells me straight out that's 90% efficient. Wow. That is insane. And I don't know if you knew this, but we 
humans have been building nanomotors and our smallest nanomotor to date as of this moment is twice the size of ATP. It can only spin at about 10 RPMs, right? And it doesn't <laughs> do anything other than spin. Well, it doesn't create anything. It's kind of like that girl, the AI girl there. Not really useful for anything, but able to demonstrate some functionality. Exactly. There you go. Exactly that. <laughs> so let me jump in because I want to get into a little bit about your stuff. Uh, well, not my stuff, just stuff that I've, I've learned that the, the ideas of and, and trying to answer your question sure, from the sure. beginning, which is a difficult one. The idea of aerobic respiration, which we're all familiar with, right? Because it involves breathing and right. it involves oxygen. So there's aerobic respiration, right? The, and then anaerobic glycolysis. And, and, and anaerobic, which is a, a secondary pathway to ATP formation. See, all that does is bring the, the phosphate over, right? So it's still the same thing. I know it's a different process, but the end result is still bringing that phosphate over so that you get the, the third phosphate from ADP to ATP, or, or may, maybe I'm missing it. No, well, the pyruvate enters the inner membrane of the mitochondria where it's completely metabolized to carbon dioxide and water. And then the energy released from this process yeah. is harnessed in a cyclical reaction. That's the Krebs cycle and ATP is formed. So the end product of aerobic respiration is the complete breakdown of glucose to water and carbon dioxide. And then these products are easily eliminated from the mitochondria. No end product inhibition can occur and the rate of aerobic respiration depends simply on the supply of oxygen and the carbohydrate and contrary to popular belief aerobic and anaerobic respiration are not mutually exclusive uh, at any one time a proportion of both aerobic and anaerobic metabolism contributes to the energy requirements of the eukaryotic cell. So the evidence for the use of this aerobic respiration suggests that this mechanism is actually active throughout oogenesis, fertilization, the pre-implantation development. During oogenesis, correlations between the state of parafollicular vascularity of developing follicles, the dissolved oxygen content of follicular fluid, and the quality of oocytes retrieved from these follicles suggests that oxidative phosphorylation plays an important role in oogenesis, meaning long before a developed human being takes a breath, they're already processing oxygen. And in fact, they're even utilizing anaerobic respiration to produce the energy necessary for development. And all they need is time and nutrition. Uh, and love, by the way. And so getting back to your question, Daniel, that you asked at the very beginning, which uh, I don't think we're going to be able to solve it here on Real Science Radio. How does the ATP synthase get the energy required to build the ATP synthase? That's a tough one. But well, the where... whole process is necessary. So you have to have the Krebs cycle, right, in order to get those ions. 
If we have yeah. the ions, you're not going to enter that into the lower chamber of the ATP to turn turn the crank. Right. I, I mean, it just seems to me that everything here begs the idea that everything was placed as one system. So when I, you know, evangelize to people, and again, I know I said the six to one is wrong. It's probably 600,000 to one um, ATP necessary for you to be able to get one crank to get three ATP. Yeah. But if that's true, then you have a full system. So the chicken or the egg thing doesn't become a conundrum. You're answering it. The chicken obviously came first. Uh -huh. And I think we would have said that even without this knowledge. But the more I look at these irreducibly sophisticated systems, I can't come away with anything else other than it was all here. When you study evolutionary biology, they're going to say some, you know, subset of RNA or some subset of the Krebs cycle was happening before the entire Krebs cycle was there. And of course, to me, that's all just supplication and hopefulness because they do not want to attribute the fact that there was an external creator that said, lo and behold, boom, chicken. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's like they always do with evolutionary thoughts and argument in general is they're never able to actually take it all the way back to the beginning ever. And so they right. spend a lot of time. And, uh, and some very impressive flowery language that impresses uh, sophomore girls like the one who programmed the AI robots. And that all may be impressive to sophomore girls, but it doesn't answer the fundamental question. But the creation of Adam at the beginning as a fully functioning human being in which God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God created Adam created his physical form, and then initiated within Adam through a supernatural act, the citric acid cycle, this Krebs cycle, started that ATP spinning. And from there, well, it's just never stopped. It's just been reproduced and reproduced, and it's never stopped. But it all, it all had to start at some point, and there is no materialistic organic answer to the question, Daniel, which is probably why scientists will spend a lifetime trying to answer that question. And if they're if they're not willing to leave room for a divine creator, then they're just going to be spinning their wheels, so to speak. Not well, to. I've been saying it over and over that if you have a symbol and a symbol is anytime you have a physical asset being used to represent something it's not, then it can't be the cause. Mm. Now, I've never heard anybody else say that other than a guy named Daniel Hedrick, but it seems to make sense to me that if you have a, you know, a representation like adenine, adenine, and adenine represents something it's not, which is the lysine amino acid, which the lysine amino acid is one very small piece of a very long linear chain. And then that linear chain, by the way, it goes DNA transcription to RNA, RNA uh, gets translated right? This is that process of getting that linear string. Then, by the way, there are some chemical processes that actually happen uh, to the linear array so that it can have chunks moved and moved in and out, very similar to the way introns and extrons are also removed in and out. I mean, there's so many processes here. And then you got protein folding, additional chemical modifications. And then finally, Another subject that I hope we get into one day is chaperones and chaperonins. These are a 
additional proteins that make sure the conformational changes to protein folding occur as desired. I mean, the level of complexity, and I realize that I am not even describing 10% of what's actually going on underneath here. And we're going to say that something simple evolved to something more complex. Yet if you go and you look at the most simple, you know, cellular life, it's not simple by any stretch of the imagination. So now we go from this non-simple thing to, hi, my name's Daniel. I, I am blown away and I don't see how anyone could ever think that the evolutionary model has a successful stepwise approach to the complexity or rather the sophistication that you and I are trying to describe. Wow. And, and, and it's, uh, hi, I'm Daniel or what hath God wrought Boom. or, or, or Mr. Watson come here, by the way, Mr. Watson. So that <laughs> accidentally, that was the first thing spoken across a telephone line, right? That's Mr. Right, yeah. Watson, come here. So you notice it wasn't Mix Watson. There was no X in there. It's Mr. Watson, even by accidents at that point. It was, but Daniel, you talk about these sophisticated systems. You're blowing my mind, okay? So God puts it simply. Only God can express things that are so phenomenally sophisticated in such an extraordinarily simple way that even a child can understand. Because in Genesis, God said that he created Adam from the dust of the earth and into his nostrils, he breathed the breath of life. And so if you're in second grade and you're in Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher reads to you from Genesis, that second grade child has the light in his eyes and in his mind goes on because he understands Adam was created from the dust of the earth and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then that child is now on a pathway to be enlightened on the pathway that actually led to the enlightenment as we look back at history. It was the Christian foundation that gave us the ability to create the scientific method. And so God explains it simply when we're in Sunday school, when we're in second grade, so that when we start to look into what's actually happening, what's actually happening with respiration on a cellular level, that we can look at it expecting to find order and expecting to find an explanation. And if we search, we'll actually find the explanation. In fact, Daniel, I think God loves us to look at all of his amazingly sophisticated systems so that we can discover what does that actually mean that you breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. I want to know what that means. And I think that brings him joy and of course, we bring him honor and glory when we discover these things and when we tell other people, especially when we tell children and we teach them about these amazing facts that point them in the direction of their creator so that they can reproduce the civilization, as a matter of fact. And so, Daniel, yeah. that's, that's why I love to have you on the show. Just phenomenal. And so bringing it back now to just discussion of 
the ATP synthase, our simple discussion of such a fabulously sophisticated and complex system that God created, reminds me of when Bob had Michael Behe on the air on Real Science Radio talking about the gears. And uh, you know what? We should just listen to it. I want the audience to hear this again. That the more we know, the more and more deeply into biology that we can see, uh, the more and more phenomenal complexity that that uh, that we observe. Well, and you write about that comparing first starting with the grasshopper and then this plant hopper, and we reported on that back when that discovery was made. It, it's this locking gear system, and that that little yeah. thing flies through the air. It, yeah, it, it, it's astounding it, when you see yeah. when you see uh, pictures of it and the gears interlocking. You know, it just screams design. You, you know, got to yes. be uh, a real determined to avoid the conclusion of design. There you go, and I just love Bob's laugh in there, and it's just you could feel. Uh, I, I, I mentioned earlier bringing glory to God by revealing the secrets of his creation to each other. And you could really feel the joy that Bob experienced. It was, it was an animating force in his life, the joy of bringing glory to God through revealing his creation. And Daniel, thank you so much for helping me to do some of that as best I can do it. I so much appreciate you coming. I thank Fred for allowing me to sit in so that we can help the audience hopefully experience some of that animating force, the joy of bringing glory to our creator God through the revelation of his creation to the world. And by the way, if you want to contribute to the real science list of things that are real, Send us an email, bob at rsr.org. We would be happy to consider whether or not what you think is real is actually real. And if it's real, we'll put it on the list. And uh, Daniel, thank you again. Good, man. This was awesome. I had fun. For Daniel Hedrick and Fred Williams and everyone at Real Science Radio, I'm Doug McBurney reminding you, as Pastor Bob often did, do right and risk the consequence. Intelligent design.